You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Happy Thursday, Canada. How's it going from coast to coast to coast in our beautiful country? Are you ready to be shocked, be surprised, to be maybe to cry, to be in awe of some heroism, to debate, to get mad, to be pissed off, to learn? I mean, this is a show. Man, we got a show for you on a Thursday. There's the war. Obviously, we're, look, we're going to go to Kharkiv again, heavily bombarded again. We've reached our guy in Kharkiv. Incredible story. You don't want to miss that. We're going to talk about the war crime that went. It's a war crime that went on in Mariupol, the coastal city where the Russians bombed a maternity child's hospital, killing at least three, injuring more than 17. That's a war crime. You bomb a hospital of children. It's hard to imagine the scenes there. It's hard to imagine what the hell is going on, but we we will, and we're going to give you the latest on that. And one of the things that's happening is when... Russia did something today that is is very hard to compute. But if you are a farmer, you'll know that the war is having a major impact on food because both Ukraine and Russia are major exporters of wheat. But who's the biggest exporter of fertilizer in the world? Nitrogen phosphates. Russia. And they're threatening to cut off fertilizer. That's That may sound like nothing. Many years ago, my uh, business partner and I, a guy named Andrew Heintzman, who we used to run a magazine together, and we wrote a couple books together, wrote a book on food. We wrote one book uh, and edited a book on energy and oil and called Fueling the Future and, and another one on Feeding the Future. And in that book, in the late 1800s, there was something called the Phosphate Wars. This is the beginning of the First World War, where people were worried about food shortages, because there's not enough fertilizer. And what was fertilizer? Nitrogen. And where did you get nitrogen from? You actually got nitrogen from guano mines. Guano is bird crap. They used to find these giant guano mines in the coast of South America, on the East Coast. And it was so important, fertilizer, for two things. Phosphate, nitrogen phosphate. Get this, guys. It was important for fertilizer to grow food, and it was important for dynamite, weapons. And it was so such a big deal that actually the U.S. said any American who claims a guano, and he sees a little part of guano where the birds would crap, they could claim it as American territory. There was actually something called the Nitrogen Wars in South America. One of the reasons why Bolivia, this is, this is all true, this is so crazy. One of the reasons why Bolivia is a landlocked country right now. They have no access to the coast, which is weird. And it's hurt them economically for a century. It's because during the phosphate wars, they lost access to the coast because they were battling over access to the guano mines. So fertilizer for dynamite and growing food. And then, and then a very famous German scientist who actually went on to win the Nobel Prize, invented a way to make artificial fertilizer. 
We wrote about this guy. His name is Fritz Haber. And in 1918, he won the Nobel Prize for something called the Haber-Bosch process, which synthesizes ammonia from nitrogen gas and hydrogen gas. And this was a way to synthesize fertilizers and explosives. And when he won the Nobel Prize, Fritz Haber, like, yeah, we wrote about this guy. It's amazing. He said, we have found a way to turn stones into food. In other words, we will be able to feed the world. And everything, all the fertilizers that we've got, the crop yields, comes from this incredible invention by this guy, Fritz Haber. Chemist. Nobel Prize winner. But that was after the war. Do you know what Fritz Haber did during the war? Just to show you the connection between what, and this is the echoes of history. This is so crazy. In the First World War, Fritz Haber was the leading German scientist, and he came up with an idea to develop gas warfare. And Fritz Haber used his scientific genius, which he won the Nobel Prize for, which many scientists were furious that he got it, because he was also the the godfather and the pioneer of gas warfare. And the very first gas attack, the very first use of chemical weapons chemical gas to slaughter people, Fritz Haber was in the trench. He was the guy pioneering it, and he said, Germany will win the war with this. And he gassed the, the uh, French. And then, and this was in, in, in 1916, in Ypres, in Belgium, on the front. And there was a two-mile line that opened up in the front. And instead of rushing through, the Germans were so terrified by this new weapon that they didn't rush through. And who filled the gap on that very famous day? Who rushed in to make sure that the gap in the line so the Germans couldn't get through was the Canadians. And the Canadians were gassed on the second day by Fritz Haber. Fritz Haber's wife, Clara, was a famous scientist in Germany. She was so distraught that her husband used his scientific genius for madness, for death, for chemical warfare, that she committed suicide the day he did it. She shot herself in the heart because she said, science has to be used to help people, not to hurt people. And her husband, and now one final twist of the knife here. Can I tell you this? This is incredible. So Fritz Haber pioneers chemical warfare both sides end up using it horrific guy then he wins the nobel peace prize for artificial fertilizer because he saves his process saves millions of lives and allows the world to feed to 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 a growing population to feed itself by the second world war fritz haber who's a jew he's jewish he develops a chemical to help farmers kill pests called zyklon b But Adolf Hitler says, sorry, you're a Jew, runs Fritz Haber out of Germany. Fritz Haber has to escape or he was going to be killed. And Hitler uses Fritz Haber's, Hitler uses Haber's Zyklon B gas, which he also developed in the death camps to gas the Jews, to turn the Jews into the very, quote, vermin that this gas was supposed to kill. Fritz Haber dies in Switzerland. And I thought about all that today. The story of Fritz Haber, who invents fertilizer when Russia has cut off, is threatening to cut off fertilizer, nitrogen, to the rest of the world. That is going to spike your food prices, not just here. For us, it's different because we are wheat growers. But around the world, and we're going to bring on, uh, this is a big issue. World food prices are about to spike and no one knows. So when we're 
hurting Russia on the war effort with sanctions. Russia's hitting back, not just turning off the taps and threatening to do that with, with gas and oil to Europe, but threatening to shut off today the export of fertilizer. And the price of certain things in certain countries, wheat, vegetable oil, just wait, it's going to go up. The connection between war and fertilizer, between between science and the, the use of it to save lives and the use of it to destroy lives. History is repeating itself. The history of Fritz Haber, who invented artificial fertilizer and used it as a weapon of war, and then the use of chemical weapons, which the United States is worried that the Russians who use chemical weapons in Syria will use again. History is repeating itself. Can you imagine We are witnessing in this war in Europe almost an echo of what we saw in the First World War. So we're going to talk about all that today. Just a remarkable history. That old saying from Faulkner, the past is never past. So we're going to talk about that. But in the meantime, we're going to go to Kharkiv. Let's go to the present. Let's go to the now. The fierce urgency of the now. The Russians are bombarding Kharkiv and we're going to go to our friend Shant. Cal Kacharian there. We're going to talk about the conservative leadership race because Jean Charest jumped into the race today. Patrick Brown's going to jump in on Sunday. The political battle is heating up. Man, we got a busy show today, everyone. So buckle up. We're going to Ukraine next. As the story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. The news out of Ukraine, and it's all over, is devastating as Russia talks fell apart today, of course. Russia is running out of smart bombs, so they're using horrific artillery shells and and dumb ammunition, and they're targeting civilians. And what happened in Mariupol, the southeastern coastal town city, where they bombed a maternity hospital, a children's hospital. Uh, President Zelensky called it an atrocity. The prime minister called it an atrocity. The world has called it an atrocity. But meantime, the Russians have stepped up their attacks on Kharkiv in the northeast. And that's where our friend Shantkel Kacharian is, a photojournalist and videographer. Now, remember, he had told us he was involved in documenting uh, these evacuation missions organized by local uh, Dnipro volunteers. Now, Dnipro is a city uh, about two and a half hours west, southwest of Kharkiv. He's been filming and taking photos of that area, and um, Shant joins us now. Shant, give us, uh, first of all, thank you again. I know it's late there. I know it's dangerous there. Give us a sense what you're seeing, where you are, and, and the latest from the ground in a very, very difficult part of Ukraine, Shant. Hi, Evan. Uh, thank you for having me back on. So uh, since we last spoke, uh, last time we had made a trip, the volunteer group and I, to uh, Kharkiv. Uh, we're actually based in Dnipro, and we make trips up to Kharkiv. And uh, every time we go up there, we take supplies, and then we come back with uh, people. Uh, and today, we went back. And what ha- what I saw that was different since last time was that 
there were I noticed that there were more cars going in than uh, coming back out, which is kind of odd because Kharkiv is uh, it's important to distinguish between the Kharkiv Oblast and the Kharkiv city. So Kharkiv is this region and it's also the name of the city. And um, there is a safe route in and a safe route out of Kharkiv. So people take their cars and they drive up through the south or through the west into the city. And uh, they use that this opportunity that they have, this time that uh, we're seeing that there are no attacks happening on the west and the south side. So people are free to move as long as they can get through the checkpoints. And I think uh, they're going in, taking their stuff, coming back out, and going to safer places like the Dnipro to the south and uh, and beyond in the west from Dnipro. And um, between Dnipro and Lviv, if you look at a map, you can sort of imagine this safety corridor that stretches throughout the, the country. And this safety corridor actually allows people from, uh, for example, Mariupol or Kharkiv or uh, Odessa, all these places that are really at risk and under attack and under constant bombardment by Russians and direct invasion and occupation. Uh, if they manage to get out of these cities, they can go to a safe city like the Dnipro, take the train, uh, whether it be short distance or even a sleeper train, and go all the way out west to Lviv. Or a town that's on the way in between the Dnipro and Lviv. And all these towns are actually safe. So the Russians are along the border, all around uh, eastern Ukraine. And all the towns that are located on the border are at risk. This includes Kiev, Kharkiv, Mariupol to the south, Odessa, the Luhansk and uh, Donetsk regions. And so uh, what, what I saw today, actually what I heard since last time is that the government has stepped up and announced that they're going to take over the Kharkiv evacuation mission. Really? So what would that mean? That would mean for the for our volunteer group, it would mean that um, it's, it's almost like mission accomplished. But um, in the sense that uh, we, we did what we had to do, and um, and now that the government's taking over, possibly we can take a step back. But I'm not sure because today I did not see any uh, some sort of big movement, uh, government subsidized, uh, like uh, a fleet of buses, for example, or uh, multiple trains taking on a lot of people and evacuating them. I was hoping to see that going in today, but unfortunately I did not. So I think you, these missions are going to continue. 
Shan, I understand you purchased a thousand dollars in supplies using donations yesterday and delivered them today. Brought back four people in their twenties with another driver. You're doing remarkable work. Can, is can you give us a sense of what you're seeing on the ground? Are there artillery shells? I mean, are you getting shelled? Is the is there any fighting nearby? So currently in the city of Dnipro, which is a safe harbor in the entire eastern region, uh, it's a city that is unscathed. However, in Kharkiv, uh, and the, the stretch of land between Kharkiv and uh, Dnipro actually looks a lot like the Canadian prairies. And uh, um, might I add that Ukraine itself is separated by the Dnipro River, yeah, which is a lot like uh, Quebec. Uh, with the La Fleuve Saint Laurent, so the Saint Lawrence River, the way it separates it, and uh, so the Russians need to get past that river from the east to the west to sort of gain access to that safety corridor I described earlier. And uh, coming back to uh, yeah, the donations, uh, I set up this little fundraiser uh, a few days ago, and it quickly reached its limit. And I used that money yesterday to buy a bunch of supplies, uh, like food, medicine, even pet food, whatever was on the list of demands from straight from Kharkiv. And we gather all these supplies and we brought it to uh, the cars that we usually use to go up to Kharkiv and back. And it was it was great. Like we we brought it up, we delivered it. We came back with four people uh, who were in their 20s. It was a quiet ride back, unfortunately. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was great to go up there again. And uh, this time, what I saw was uh, people sweeping the rubble from uh, downtown Kharkiv, where all those beautiful buildings are. The colorful buildings, they're made of stone, where the facades... Uh, thanks to uh, the structural integrity of stone buildings, the facades remained intact, but uh, everything else, like windows, are shattered. Uh, there's uh, roofing that's collapsed. And uh, there were a handful of people just sweeping rubble. And yesterday night, there was a new attack in that same place like in central central Kharkiv uh and it was this little mall uh that actually caught fire because of shelling and uh I went I went there uh I tried to gain gain access to film inside but I think (laughs) my driver got cold feet uh my driver this yeah this time he was uh his name is uh Yanislav Yanislav is a father of two. He has uh, uh, two girls, uh, age 10. They're twins, and they're actually in the Dnipro. Right, they're safe. Where we're based, yeah. I think that's why he sort of got cold feet. He, wanted just, he just well, wanted to get out there and get back to his daughter. Well, look, you got to... You got to be careful. It's very dangerous. Shant, let's stay in touch. What you're doing is is unbelievable. The the, the human work, the journalism. Shant Kel Kacharian, uh, sir, just amazing. Uh, Shant, thank you. We'll we'll stay in touch with Shant, who's just a remarkable guy. Uh, we're going to take a break and talk about the conservative leadership race next. 
talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. Jean Charest is announcing he's going to jump into the conservative leadership race. He will be number three following Pierre Polyevre and Leslin Lewis. His social media game, pretty slow. He just joined Twitter, I think today, and he tweeted this little video. He's sitting like at a table on a blank wall. I felt like I was watching like 2004, but anyway, here's Jean Charest. To all my followers uh, who are joining us now, welcome. And, uh, and welcome to this leadership campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada and for the future of Canada. We hope that you uh, will follow us, but even better, join our team and join a group of men and women who are built to win. That was it. Welcome to the race, Jean Charest. Now, polls are showing, there's a poll out on the conservative side, about 41% um, of conservatives think Pierre Polyev's got this thing locked up. But you got to sell memberships. Quebec counts for a lot. Ontario counts for a lot. Uh, it looks like the um, former MP and now the mayor of Brampton, um, Patrick Brown, is going to jump in on Sunday. So to break it all down, we have brought on someone who covers the conservative campaign very closely, Stephanie Levitz, Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. Steph, um, by the way, Steph uh, sent me a note last night about the COVID because, uh, and we're all good, Steph. So thank you. I, Steph's a mom. So she, she was doing a little momming on me, which was, which was pretty <laughs> sweet. It was like talking to my own mom. She's like, take a rest. I'm fine. Break it down for me, Steph. Um, so Pierre Polyevre, sort of clearly the front runner, but what do you make of the Jean Charest strategy? And uh, uh, we can talk about his, his uh, social media because that was a slow social media start. Yeah, you know what? It was it was actually interesting because it was one of the things that struck me. And I know you, you know you cover these things enough, Evan. You're probably the same. You start you start reading things into things, and you wonder, am I reading too much into this? But you know, Pierre Polyev launches his campaign with a big splashy social media hit late at night on a Saturday. He sets the internet abuzz. He racks up millions of clicks, and everyone is all excited about Pierre Polyev. You know, and Pierre Polyev is very popular on social media because the brand the the anger, the energy, the, the, the great remarks, the zingers, that all works really, really well on social. Then you've got a guy like Jean Charest, um, you know, for lack of a better term, not just a career politician, but a historical career politician. He's been in politics a very long time. Of course, he had some time in the private sector. He served in federal government. He ran the province of Quebec. And so when he comes to federal leadership, how is he going to launch his campaign? He's going to do it old school, man. He is going to go to an event. He's going to have it in Calgary. He's going to shake hands. And I found the juxtaposition of that really interesting because it, you know, which is the way that we do politics now? I mean, I think lots of folks have said, look, if social media clicks counted as votes, then Jagmeet Singh would be prime minister, right? Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. got a massive following online, but where did that get him when it came to getting elected last year? So the buzz around social is nice. I don't know that the fight for the hearts and minds and souls and votes of the Conservative Party, does it happen on social or does it not? I don't know about that. And I think, as you know, as you said in the intro, you got to get out and you got to sell memberships. Is it nice if you've got some zingers to put on social media? Yeah, sure, it is. I mean, it, you know, gets our attention, right? Gets us chatting. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is going to be a campaign, you know, one in, in, and now that we're sort of coming past COVID, it is going to be that traditional campaign where you got to get out, you got to meet members, you got to meet them where they are, you have to listen to them. 
you have to, shall we say, bandage over some of the hurt feelings and wounds from the last couple of leadership campaigns and how things have been going for the party. There's a lot happening there that, that takes this sort of much deeper than, you know, a video on social media. Uh, speaking of Stephanie Levitz uh, from the Toronto Star, I had tweeted out when the charade thing, very low-key social media game to start from charade, campaign clearly not relying on social media to sell memberships. Likes and tweets don't always convert to votes and members, but contrast that to the sophisticated social media and data mining start of Polyevra. Here's the thing that I think, I mean, it's different than... Pierre Polyevre's social media game is different, I think, than Jugmeet Singh. Jugmeet Singh is like a this bro cult where he's he's a hipster and he's dancing, and and I don't know if those people vote because they didn't they haven't voted for him in the last two elections. I get that. Pierre Polyevre is a data mining operation. Almost all of his says, "Sign my petition, sign my petition, sign my mandate." He used the trucker protest to create data mining lists and fundraisers for very highly motivated uh, um, voters. I don't know if Pierre Polyevre. I think his social media game is devastatingly effective. His big question is, can he grow beyond his base? Uh, but I think it's. Uh, you know, Sheree in 2022 running a 1995 type campaign is kind of interesting. What happens, though, with Leslin Lewis and with Patrick Brown when they enter the race, when Pat enters the race on Sunday? Steph, then what happens to this crazy race? Yeah, exactly that, right? You've got to game it out. I mean, Pierre Paul there at this point, um, you know, so your listeners know the conservatives, the way they, they vote for their leadership, it's a ranked ballot, right? So you rank your number one, then you rank your number two. And if on the first round of counting, your number one doesn't is, has the lowest amount of votes, they drop off, your second choice gets counted again, right? So the path to victory um, is either that you get 50% plus one on that first ballot, or you better hope you've got some allies in the race, some folks whose supporters are going to choose you next. So when you take the field as a continuum, if you look at all of the folks who are in the race, who may be in the race, you have to game out, okay, who, where is Pierre's number, like ballot number two support coming from? Second choices, right? Whose second choice is he? Will he be a second choice for Leslin Lewis's folks? Well, I mean, Leslin Lewis entered in 2020 largely with the support of the social conservative movement for some of her views that align closely with that wing of the party. But you already have the organized element of the social conservative world campaign life coalition. It's right now. They're already warning folks off of Pierre Polyev. They got burned, Evan. They got burned by Aaron O'Toole in the last race, you know, that he was going to respect their views, so on and so forth. Didn't quite pan out. Um, and so what do these folks do? Do they rank a number two? Do, do they just not bother? Because I don't know, in the, in, if you look at the rest of the field, you're looking at much more progressive candidates, right? More progressive even. Like, if we accept perhaps that Pierre is running as a right-wing populist, I don't think Charest is a right-wing populist. Certainly Patrick Brown I don't see as a right-wing populist. Um, you know, there's a guy, Ontario MPP Roman Baber. Now, if he gets in, that's kind of interesting. Right. He might have a constituency who goes over to Pierre Paul, Paul but I don't know how big that constituency is going to be. So where is his down-ballot support for Pierre? On the converse, look at Jean Charest, look at Patrick Brown. I mean, you know, there's a photo kicking around right now of Patrick Brown, a young Patrick Brown with a, with a poster of Jean Charest yeah. on his wall, right? I, I mean, there's stories that they met when they were kids, like when he was a kid, all this stuff. He idolized him. He was his gateway into politics, all that stuff. So you could sort of surmise that if you're voting for one, your second choice is the other. So there's more well, room... 
on that side, maybe. By the way, uh, I know your colleague Althea Raj had this idea, this article that there's some kind of deal between Sheree and and Brown. I, they both deny it, but even if there's a deal or not a deal, they're simpatico. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. And I think also, I mean, what I hear from all the campaigns, right, save, so, save a bit for Pierre's, is that like every leadership race, people struggle with this idea of, of, you know, do you run a negative campaign or do you not? Is there any merit or value to be had in attacking your opponents? I mean, isn't that, you know, we all watch these debates during a leadership race and they're all in violent agreement with each other because fundamentally they are all supposed to be of the same party, of the same ideology. So how do you manage that? And I think when you take two gentlemen like Patrick Brown and Jean Charest, who have a longstanding political relationship um, and who come, you know, maybe similarly ideologically, but packed or no pack, they're similar enough that, again, their supporters, I, I don't see, you know, somebody voting number one for Patrick Brown and then number two for Leslie Lewis or number, you know, I don't see that in, in the great shakeout of how these votes will work. I, I will say this. This is a doozy, man. Uh, there's an article floating. I want people to understand. There's an article floating around that when when Pierre Polyever was like 19 in university, working in university politics, so was Patrick Brown. And yeah. they were both fighting over Joe Clark and purging right? the party of like, you know, during the reform days. And yeah. these guys have faced off against each other since they were in their teens. This is a Donnybrook of Donnybrooks. You got Sheree. Brown, Lewis, Paulie Evra. I'll tell you, this is the heavyweights. Uh, Steph, uh, I can't wait to, to, to follow this one. Uh, thanks. Great, great to have you. Thanks for the motherly advice, Steph. And we'll Take talk to you. Take care of yourself. Go some chicken soup or something. She's the greatest. Uh, all right. We got, we got lots coming up. Uh, coming up next, a food crisis from the war. Wait till you hear this. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. At the top of this program, I told you the story about Fritz Haber, the German scientist who pioneered the Haber-Bosch method that created artificial fertilizer that fueled not only fertilizer to feed a world that many people thought would lead to starvation because of population growth, but also fed the war effort. Fritz Haber became a war criminal, pioneering chemical weapons, including the chemical that was eventually used by Hitler to kill the Jews. And he was a Jew. Complicated, tragic figure. But here we are in 2022, in the middle of another war. And there's lots of consequences for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but one of them is the cost of food. And, and here we are again, like in 1911, 1914, 1918. Fertilizer is playing a role because Russia, the lead exporter of fertilizer, nitrogen, is threatening to turn off the taps. And Jerry Butts is the vice chairman of Eurasia Group, the former principal secretary of Canada and the former president and CEO of the World Wildlife Fund. And he's been tracking what could be one of the least talked about but most consequential factors of this war, which is a spike in the price of food. Jerry Butts, how are you, sir? It's great to be here, Evan. This this is a remarkable thing. I, these are the consequences of war that don't make the headlines. Talk about what you and the group at your group at Eurasia Group are following about this and why it's so so vital to know. 
Well, thanks, and thanks for the opportunity, Evan, because as you said in your lead-in, I think this is an underappreciated and so far undercovered aspect of this crisis. We've all uh, been horrified by the scenes, and rightly so, that we've been seeing from Ukraine. Um, it's the, uh, um, the less obvious, far-reaching consequences that we're focused on as well at Eurasia Group. Uh, in a nutshell, Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat. Ukraine is the fifth largest exporter of wheat. Uh, when the largest exporter invades the fifth largest, that in and of itself is enough to cause grave concern for both the price of wheat worldwide, but more importantly for people who are already on the precipice of hunger, the availability of wheat worldwide. But, of course, that's not the only thing going on in the world. Uh, we are in the era of climate change. We are in the second year of the La Nina event. And that means that countries that could normally step into the gap uh, to produce extraordinary um, crops uh, are not able to because of water scarcity and climate disruption. So we are very worried about the consequences of this, in particular in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, but also South Asia. Everyone in the world is going to see it in higher prices, but millions of people are going to face food scarcity. Yeah, I was speaking to Jerry Butts about the food scarcity. Nitrogen fertilizer, folks. Russia is the biggest exporter of nitrogen fertilizer. You, you, by the way, it's usually made from natural gas at large factories, as you know. Yeah. Uh, Farmers are paying attention to this. Farmers yeah. are paying attention because they, it, folks, uh, look, it's going to hit it's going to hit, as you say, places like Egypt and the Middle East hard, uh, and Canada will be slightly different. But every farmer is paying attention to this. Why? Well, because in Canada, where we're blessed with a great productive agricultural sector, the opportunity to get an extraordinary um, amount of money for this year's crop is... Uh, uh, farmers are definitely going to be paying attention to that. You mentioned the fertilizer aspect of this. Natural gas prices, of course, are at all-time highs because of uh, the disruptions in the energy system that have been precipitated by the war, but also potash, which is uh, a commodity that Canadians in particular, if you're in Saskatchewan, know well. Uh, Belarus and Ukraine, a lot of pot potash comes from that region as well. Yep. And it's not clear... Uh, potash, of course, is a, a key component of uh, fertilizer, and it's not clear that they're going to be able to supply their customers this year. I, I just want people to appreciate this uh, when we, because we saw inflation hitting a 40-year high in the U.S. Mm -hmm. If you look, the prime minister was just uh, with Boris Johnson. Uh, in the U.K., the price for fertilizer for animal feed, okay, fertilizer prices, is now... A thousand pounds a ton. Now yeah. that it was last week, it was six hundred and fifty pounds a ton. So it's already gone up uh, to a thousand pounds, and it is surging. That means food prices, everything, everything made on a farm, gas, it's going up. And and I I want people to understand the cost of war is inflationary on so many levels. And Russia, Russia is not. They have weapons here, Jerry Butts, don't they? Totally. And uh, one of the things that people who've lived on this planet during the time that we have, Evan, have been blessed with is uh, relative peace and security. But the long history of warfare 
exhibits too many examples of monsters who are willing to use starvation as a weapon of war. And, of course, you cannot look at what's happening in Ukraine every day and rule out the fact that Vladimir Putin is capable of doing just that. Yeah. And, and again, folks, these are the kind of things I'm really glad, Jerry, that you're here, because if you if folks, if you're looking around the world and you want to understand what's about to happen and you're going to feel it, Bloomberg headline, Russia jolts global fertilizer market by seeking end to exports could be yeah. a severe supply shock. Fertilizer prices could jump in North America 10 percent. Everything on the shelf that you're paying for that, by the way, everything's going up anyway. Everything. So, so what does that mean for inflation? Because look, the, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to choke off the Russian economy. Everyone says, "Great, they're they're in But Russia's saying, "Well, we'll choke off your economy too." Yeah. Look, I think it's really important that people be prepared to make sacrifices. This is a a long term um, strategic conflict we're now in. This is not going to end in a week or two. And if we're serious about taking on the Russians, we've got to be prepared to make sacrifices at home. I think a general rule of thumb is if you look in developed economies, Evan, uh, food and fuel is about 10% of the consumer price index, whereas in developing or poorer countries, it's about 50%. So we are going to face pinches here at home, and people who are already on the uh, bubble of poverty are going to really suffer the most. but it's also important to look at large geographies where hundreds of millions of people live mm. uh, who are going to be in real danger because of all of this. Uh, Jerry Butts at the uh, Eurasia Group tracking one of the, again, folks, what we're trying to do is make sure you have a sense of not just the military and the humanitarian crisis, but war has many facets. And uh, Jerry Butts, vice chairman at Eurasia Group, uh, tracking one of them, which is the food war that's going on. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be here, Evan. Take care. That's Jerry Butts on that. And look, uh, by the way, David Frum also wrote an interesting article in The Atlantic about that called The Food War. Just follow that, okay? Because as we're tracking this war, we're going to go on the ground. There's the humanitarian side. But this is a long-term battle, and you've got to understand the impacts this is going to have on our fuel supply on our, 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 the link between energy and food, which I've been working on for many years. So we'll talk about that. But then, of course, you know, the beauty of our democracy is uh, we're going to have an election in the next year or two. There'll be a new conservative leader. Who will that be? We'll dig into that with overhyped and underplayed with Scott Reed next. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. It is time on a Thursday for Overhyped and Underplayed. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or Underplayed. And our host, well, a friend of the host, the main character here, Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. I know you lost your friend, John Duffy, um, who was a longtime strategist and, and partner. And I just want to send you and, and all 
Uh, we've commented on it uh, a fair bit, but I just want to send you my uh, condolences because I know you, you kind of went up with him. You know, you danced with them that brought you. Sometimes you have your battles with them, but in the end, uh, you, you guys were, were dancing on the same side there, and, and, and I'm real sorry for your loss. Well, it's, it's really kind of you. It's been quite astonished i've known john and we worked in politics on one campaign or another and some sometimes in business uh going back for more than 30 years which you know is uh sort of a startling and a sobering fact but uh you know it's been really i mean it's awful to have lost him uh it's awful if anybody 58 to just drop dead out of the clear blue sky but gosh it's been so uh affecting to see how uh widespread the recognition of his con contributions has been like, you know, you, the, the mayor spoke at his memorial. You had prime ministers uh, and uh, premiers weighing in, people from media. Like it really, you know, it was uh, quite, quite beautiful to see the, um, uh, the many lives and different kinds of lives he touched. Yeah. And, and on this program, all our listeners love to jump in and we debate. And, and I will say this. Nobody took more joy in the, the fierce passions of politics than John Duffy. He was an intellectual omnivore. He just loved the, he loved the cut and thrust of politics, but always in the service of getting, I can't say it on air, getting stuff done. And he took losses and he, he took some wins, which is the story of politics. You, you, nobody uh, is encrusted in jewels and ascends. But uh, anyway, it was uh, it quite, quite a, a life stolen too early. I know he leaves behind his daughters and his extraordinary wife, but uh, I know you were close, as were many of us. So thanks, Scott. Um, and, and, you know, look, we're, we're all a family in this country, and uh, people that jump in I have a lot of respect for. Um, overhyped or underplayed, Jean Charest jumping in to the conservative race. I'm going to say overhyped, and I think that it's important that he's running. I'm glad that he didn't feel like he was being bullied out of the ballpark, but um, I think it's overhyped in that I think that we now see the reemergence of the narrative that many people in media and politics wanted to tell, which is this is going to be a battle royale for the soul and for the future of the Conservative Party. I still do not believe that. I know Jean. I like Jean, um, but I don't think he has a snowball's chance in hell of winning this thing. For him to win the leadership he will have to replace the party that's literally what will need to happen in my opinion and so he has two months uh, along with his supporters to sell you tell me 60,000 70,000 80,000 because I uh, memberships because I believe and distributed all across the country in you know 338 ridings or say the 225 that will probably make the difference and um, I don't think that that's a feasible task I think the party has chosen populism I think it's chosen grievance politics I think it's chosen an angrier uh, nastier feedback loop of grievance and I don't think it wants anything to do and we see you know when the front runners campaigns arguments against Sheree is not we're better than him but rather he's not even a conservative he doesn't belong here he doesn't fit in um i just think that tells you something so i think it's overhyped in that i don't think he's going to give people the race they expect i think that he's going to get the overhyped or underplayed the soon to be the arrival of patrick brown in the race underplayed and the reason it's underplayed is that um patrick brown could be the guy that breaks this race open if there were any possibility of breaking it open i personally think that polyab is just too strong a machine and he's too where the party wants to be but patrick brown can move memberships he can sell memberships in mississauga and brampton and in other places that people might not immediately assume and so he will be able to sell tens of thousands of memberships and if he 
if Sharae is able to put himself in a position where he's ahead of, on the basis of name recognition, sales, and appeal, if he, that he's ahead of Brown, well, then there's a natural constituency of an against you know, any, uh, anybody, but, and Brown can add real momentum to someone else's campaign um, because he can actually move memberships. Yeah. But, on a, but on a ranked ballot that, that might pose trouble if those two and, and, and there's certainly simpatico on that. I, I think that it is just fascinating on that. They got to sell a lot of memberships, but I, I, as you say, Pierre Polyevra's uh, he's, he's so dominant right now. The other thing that I think people are underplaying about, uh, Pierre Polyevra, and and there's a lot of critics on his side and a lot of supporters on his side, but today the U.S. economy had the highest inflation rate in 40 yep. years. The war is driving inflation rates. We just talked about food prices. I'll say this: whatever you think of his diagnosis or his solutions, Pierre Polyevra has decided that he will own the inflation issue, and that is becoming a central issue. You cannot discount that as a savvy, smart political strategy. And that's now his home turf. Yeah, for sure. And look, when, uh, the way that people talk about this race, it's it's weird because it, it gets characterized as though these other uh, incoming candidates are dynamic, that they are moving factors, that they will, um, that they're in the process of altering the shape of the race. And Polyev gets talked about as though he's static. He's not static. Okay. So he's on the numbers when it comes to talking about inflation and bread and butter economics. He's on the numbers in terms of where he is as a populist leader who can communicate with verve, with, uh, energy, um, I would say, with uh, plenty of misinformation sometimes, but he can do that for that party. And and on top of all those things, he's going to sell memberships. He's also, yeah. so the goalposts are going to move further away there would candidates you got to sell 50,000 today well guess what one month from today it turns out you had to sell 65,000 so it's you know I, I just think people are underestimating Pierre because they say well I don't like his politics I don't like his manner I don't either um, but don't underestimate him because this guy is a sharp knife going through uh, the hot butter of Canadian politics um, Pierre just uh, put out this tag a picture of um Patrick Brown, uh, the, the Toronto Star article that Patrick Brown and Jean Charest have a deal that could make them the next conservative leader. The cat is out of the bag, Pierre Polyever writes. The carbon tax candidates have a backroom deal to take over the leadership and impose their liberal policies on the conservative party. Help me stop them and protect our principles. And of course, there is a data mining thing there. He's the, the, So it, this is, uh, I would say this, this thing has barely started. They're six months and they are throwing haymakers. Right. Like this is this is not a genteel campaign, is it? No, it is not. And typically in these kinds of campaigns and, you know, we're going super nerd here, but the format of these uh, leadership elections matters a lot. We had an old delegated convention. Well, you know, that's that led itself to a whole set of dynamics. Now you've got these, you know, weighted ranked ballots. It leans itself to another set of dynamics. What's interesting about Pierre is that he's not trying to build later ballot support with either of these guys. He knows that if they get momentum, it will be at his expense. And so yeah. he is trying to kill them, strangle them in the crib, get them early. Um, and look, you know, a lot of it is uncouth a lot, you know, and, and, and it offends people's uh, sensibilities, but don't assume that it isn't effective. 
there is actually a term, political crib death, that used to be used in Harper's old campaign. I remember Jason Leader talking about that. Um, that's what you want to do. Get Make sure that it's a horrible thing, thing to say, but get the other candidates, kill, kill that campaign before it gets out of the crib. Just real quick, Scott Reed, uh, overhyped or underplayed. Does Justin Trudeau prefer one? Would he rather run against Sheree Brown or Pierre Polyever? Or should he just, is, is his number so low right now, it's like he's busily passing the torch right now to Christopher Freeland? Well, I don't believe that he's busy passing the torch to Christopher Freeland. Uh, you know, I've known a few prime ministers over the years, and I know this. Uh, people who are good enough to imagine themselves as prime minister, much as much less um, good enough to become prime minister, then have a hard time imagining themselves not being prime minister. So I don't believe this hype about him going anywhere. But I think it's I, I, I think that at the end of the day, he wants uh, Polyev, not because Polyev is the worst politician of the, of the bunch. He's at maybe the strongest. But I think he wants him because that creates an energy di- – uh, producing clash, yeah. not just of parties, yeah. but of visions. Well, and he, and he can also run, of course, the classic uh, wedge against the NDP easier on uh, Pierre Polyever. All right, Scott, thank you, my friend. Uh, overhyped and underplayed with our friend Scott Reed. Happy Sons Day. He's got, I don't know, I think he's got four sons. He probably had another one on this uh, on this call. Uh, who would you like to see as the next conservative leader? one 855 or 7-10-10. Your turn next. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. So the conservative uh, leadership race is really heating up. So tonight, Jean Charest, he was at one point the youngest minister in the conservatives, 28 was a minister in the Mulroney government. Then they got eviscerated. Remember, the PCs got eviscerated. It was Elsie Wayne and Jean Charest, the two seats for the progressive conservatives. And he, he built back that party. Then it split into the reform party. Then he was urged to go become Save Canada and become a liberal premier. Liberal in Quebec is not liberal federally. There is no conservative or liberal, uh, party there. So he did, and he was the premier there. Now Pierre Polyever, who's first out of the gate. Then Leslin Lewis, the social conservative rookie MP who came in fourth last time. Second out of the gate. Now tonight, Jean Charest is going to try his hand at re-entering politics for an Act 3, an Act 2 in federal politics. And Patrick Brown is going to announce on Sunday. I tell you, these are real candidates. Every one of them is uh, consequential. Who would you like to see become the next conservative leader? One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. You can ask me whatever you want. Let's uh, let's get rolling here. Uh, Nick's got our board up, and we've got John. John, what's up? Well, I have old politics for a long time, and. My honest opinion is that it should either be Sheree or Brown because they scare the living hell out of Scott Reed. And anytime you scare the hell out of a liberal pundit or someone who has worked for a liberal prime minister, that's the person who's most electable and is most likely to take down the liberal government. John, I, I will say this. Uh, I don't know about the, the Reed quotient, but I, I'm with you that the liberals would rather run against Pierre Polyevre. By the way, 
that doesn't mean they beat Pierre Paul ever. He has a very good shot of winning anyway. But uh, you're right. I mean, Jean Charest having a hard. I think they'd have a harder time running against Jean Charest. You're probably right, John. I think they would rather a contrast election against Pierre. Go ahead, sir. I don't see uh, Trudeau actually. If the Liberals are led into the next election with a leader at 16% of the polls, I don't see them winning, period. But I think that there is an easier path to victory with a charade who will bring you Quebec or a Brown that will definitely bring you the 905 of Ontario. Yeah, John, good point. Uh, you, you, I, I, I think you're, you're not wrong. I guess my I question a, is... I am a card-carrying member of the, of the Conservative Party, and I thought we could have beat them last time if we had elected McKay. John, thanks for the call. I, I would just say this. Um, I just don't know if the Conservative Party is ready for that. Pierre Polyevre and a whole wing of the party do not want a price on carbon. They do not want to look like they're liberal lights. They're not true blue conservatives. And um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go Dylan on that one. Dylan, what's your what's your sense of that? Because you're on the Pierre Polyevre side. I am. Yeah, uh, he's been an MP in uh, in my area for a long time. Um, he's been he's someone who's been talking about inflation before it was cool, and he can really uh, wade into the weeds on economic issues. And I think that he really embodies a couple of qualities really essential for any politician, and that's uh, the people respect him and they trust him. And uh, that will go a long way. And you contrast that with someone like Patrick Brown, who I would like to remind everyone, when he was running to be the, uh, the leader of the uh, provincial conservative party, uh, before winning it and then being displaced by Doug Ford, he was telling everyone, oh, he was going to get rid of the, uh, the Ontario sex ed curriculum. And, and he won a lot of votes based on that, even within the Tamil community, okay? And then once he got in, once he became the leader, he literally said to people, he's like, he's like no, I'm changing course. He goes, and if you don't like it, go vote for someone else. Those were his exact words. So people should never forget that about Patrick Brown. So what about just on, really on Pierre Polyevra, what, what do you make of his, does it bother you, his overt support of the truckers or not? Uh, no, I'm, a, I'm an overt supporter of the truckers. Okay. <laughs> That's one of okay. the things that I like about him. I'm glad okay, that he's cool. standing up for the people of this country and for freedom. Um, so, no, I think, I think it's great, and, uh, and I hope he goes all the way. And I think, uh, Can I ask you one as, more question? Can sure. I ask you one more question? Uh, both Pat Brown and, well, Jean Charest didn't have a price on carbon. He had a price on a cap and trade in Quebec. Is a price on carbon for you a do or die issue? Uh, yeah, it is. And I'm, I'm completely against the carbon tax. And, and interesting you mentioned that because I think as, as that sort of thing, like the gas prices and our other economic issues, um, worsen over, over the next period of time, people are going to look for someone like Pierre Pauly ever in the mold of Stephen Harper who can get us out of this mess. And, and just like to remind people too, Jean Charest was the leader of the Liberal Party in Quebec when he was the Premier, the Liberal Party. And now he wants to be the leader of the Conservative Party federally. Uh, give me a break. And the guy has clown hair. All right, all right, all right. Let's not get personal, Dylan. I appreciate that. But um, Dylan, Dylan's got a lot to say about Jean Charest. Uh, Matthew, though, has got the opposite view. So we're hearing from every side here. Matthew, what's your take? Well, I want want a leader that I think would be better than Justin Trudeau. And I don't think every one of those conservative leaders would be, even considering, I guess I'm not a big fan, so the bar wouldn't be that high. I think um, Olivier, or... Polyver, probably Well, he he started out as Polyver, but now he's Polyver. Oh, I see. Uh, I think that he is sort of reminds me of Andrew Shear because he's not really become an adult, 
you know, in the real world, he's been kind of within that political bubble. And so I'm always wary of those with without a broad experience. And Patrick Brown isn't much better. And then that leaves us with Leslyn Lewis. I got sort of excited about her at one point, but then she has she seems to have some real social conservative conservative sort of intolerance, not very liberal view in terms of uh, you know social values, which I like my conservatives to have. So that leaves me with uh, Jean Charest, whom I actually kind of like the fact that he's got a little bit of liberal. You know, not all liberal policies are bad. <laughs> Man, and you're a conservative. All right, well, I appreciate that. That's interesting I lean, analysis. I lean that way. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting yeah. analysis because I'm getting a lot of texts saying stuff like Pierre can win the party, Chirac can win the country, so I pick the latter. And another person saying Pierre would be a gift to the left, but bad for Canada. The conservatives almost certainly lose. Uh, but a lot of people think that Pierre, he understands the costs of living in Canada. Um, and somebody's here saying, Evan, uh, I'd enthusiastically go for Lisa Raitt. She ran and she lost. Um, uh, Evan, I'm a conservative voter, and I want Pierre Polyever to be the leader. If not, I will abstain from voting in the next federal election. The reason I think that note is important to read is, is this a split in the party? This is a really, whoever wrote me that text at 71010, thank you, because I'm intrigued by that. Because every party has a, look, I'm all for a robust leadership race and pundits get overheated and, and sort of foamed at the mouth about, oh, they're, they're, they're going to split the party up. You need a real clash of ideas. That's the only way you get renewal. Parties need a kind of, to use a, a conservative economic theory, they need a creative destruction so they have renewal. You can't keep doing the same thing again and again and expect a different result. The conservatives lost under Harper. They lost under Shear. They lost under O'Toole, all to Justin Trudeau. They can't just keep pitching the same pitch and think this time we're going to win. They got to they got to reconstruct. So I don't know if that always means a split, but I tell you this note is interesting because Pierre Polyev is not talking about Jean Charest as uh, well. My conservative ideas are better than his. He's saying this guy's not a conservative. So you're telling all the people that may support. Jean Charest, if he loses, you ain't conservatives. And my question is, is that good for the party? Like, this is, we haven't even started the campaign. This is day one, and you're already saying you're not even a conservative. Not, not, I'm right, you're wrong, my idea is better than your idea. It's, you're not in the club, man. You're not, and, and, and so I just think that's interesting. Will people who say, I'm a Pierre Polyever voter, he's got the most support in terms of, MPs and delegate, but will those folks accept others? I think that's really, really, really interesting. Uh, I'm going to continue taking some texts and calls after this because I love the texts and calls. Um, you can continue to talk about this one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. It also you can ask me anything. We, let's also talk about this, and I'll take calls on this. How far should Canada go to get involved in Ukraine? We'll talk about Ukraine and politics next. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program, everybody. 
Kind of ask me anything Thursday. Let's talk about the conservative leadership race. Who would you like to see lead it? How far should Canada go to support Ukraine? Should Canada hit its defense spending NATO target of 2%? We spend about just over 1.3%. We spend about $25 billion. 2% would be closing in on $40 billion plus. So every year, Canada would have to add closing in on $15 billion, $16 billion more on defense. To hit the 2%. Germany's going to do it. Sweden's doing it. Uh, uh, they've promised today to do it. Sweden did. The UK already does it. This is the cost of democracy. But remember, a month ago we were saying we got to invest in healthcare. We need more beds because unless we have more beds, we got to take these really harsh things, these actions like lockdowns, because our healthcare system <clears throat> gets so overwhelmed by things like the COVID sitch, which I've got. Um, because we just don't have any capacity. So then we, then the provinces are like, we need another $25 billion or more in healthcare transfers. And then they're like, hey, there's no money tree. You are the money tree. You're the money tree. So you can ask me, should Canada hit its 2% on defense spending? Well, the world's changing. World's changing. I'll tell you, when you've got in Russia invading a, a democratic country of 40 million people in Europe, you got to think about that. One eight five five six three three ten ten, or seven ten ten. You can ask me anything on this. Um, we can talk about the leadership race. We can talk about it's. Uh, I like this Thursday where we just we just go for it. And our, there, the phones are ringing up. Uh, Ross, Russ, Russ. I got you, Russ. What's cooking? Well, you know what? I live in David McGinty's riding here in Ottawa. I'm sure you know it well. David McGinty is probably the safest liberal candidate in the world. And, but what I've seen here, you know, I've been going against him every time I can. I have worked tooth and nail with the conservatives trying to unseat him. And, you know, I never would vote for the liberals. Well, after what I've seen from Pierre Polyev and Candace Bergen wearing her MAGA hat and Pierre, you know, and he's going so extreme to the Trumpish base out in Western Canada that I sent an email to David McGinty and John Fraser saying that I'm so unhappy with what I'm seeing that I'm about an inch away from volunteering to help them wow. in the next federal or provincial election. So you have fought against the liberals for election after election, and, and now you're, wow, you might throw in the blue towel. Russ, I appreciate that. That's interesting because Pierre Polyever has such avid supporters, and he's so far ahead. He's got so many endorsements, and yet he's so polarizing. Uh, but I want to bring on Tom because Tom's a Leslin Lewis supporter. Tom, what's up? Hey, I can't hear you, Tommy, Hello. but uh, how are you doing, man? Good, good. Yeah, I just want to talk about uh, Leslin Lewis for a second. Go for it. Yeah, so I mean, like, I had, uh, you know, not heard of her until about a month ago. Then just started paying attention to what she had to say. And uh, sure enough, she reflected exactly my views on a lot of things. And I just feel that uh, she should be getting a bit more uh, attention from uh, liberal and conservative voters. Because uh, I think a lot of people could relate to her. What attract now? So I just want people to understand. Leslie Lewis is a lawyer. 
She's an open uh, social conservative on issues, but she calls herself a compassionate social conservative. She came in, she surprised everyone with an extraordinary campaign, came in fourth place last time around. Then she was elected. Uh, Aaron O'Toole left her out of the cabinet. She had tweeted a lot of stuff about doubts about vaccines then and had supported the truckers that I don't think sat well with the Aaron O'Toole camp, but she's really will be the standard bearer for the social conservatives and maybe others. Let's touch in on that point for a second. Yeah, go for it. uh, That's exactly it, right? uh, She's critical of the vaccine rollout, critical of the vaccines in general, which I feel has been a very unheard argument for uh, the past couple of years. So it's good to refresh me to hear someone actually talk about it. Then also, uh, you know, you got guys like Trudeau who are just saying that anyone that thinks a certain way, they're racists or misogynists, right? So if you have Leslie Lewis up there with her views, it kind of nullifies anything that he's saying, right? Yeah, I, listen, I think Leslie Lewis will be a uh, potential kingmaker. And I wonder where, uh, I don't know if she can win it. Uh, I certainly don't make predictions. You know, I don't think so either. I, I'll be honest, I don't think she could win it. But this is how it would help. With her and Pierre having a debate, they would bring up a lot of subjects that would touch a lot of people. A, a debate between Charest and Polyev, it would be the same old politics as we know it. And eventually, I believe it would split the party and uh, might not have a great outcome for those social conservatives. Leslie Lewis just goes up and puts up a big fight. She'll bring up a bunch of really good subjects. She'll get people interested in the debate, that's for sure. And so then you got, you know, good topics of conversation going around the conservative circles and maybe even drafting some people like with liberal mindsets just because of who she is. Her big, one of her, the big knocks, and I appreciate the call, Tom, is she doesn't speak French. She's learning French, but her French is bad. And, you know, when you have Pierre Polyever speaks good French, obviously Jean Charest speaks perfect French. And Patrick Brown speaks French, so I appreciate the call. But, yeah, I, I think we shouldn't count out Leslie Lewis. She's going to be a big factor. Uh, Sean, what's up? Uh, great pleasure to talk to you. I've been listening to you for years. This is quite a treat for me. Oh, well, thank you. My pleasure. What's up? Uh, well, I, I just wanted to, you know, if, <laughs> to comment on Pierre Polyevre, my op- just, just to get my observations about this man out of the way, I've been listening to him, you know, off and on, online, on TV, on LinkedIn, and I find his mannerisms extremely off-putting and pugnacious. And the way he carries himself and the way his craven style of divisive politics for me kind of plays to the extreme right. And, you know, left-wing politicians do the same thing, too, to a certain extent, maybe not a la Polyev, but I think the reality is, is that most people in Canada do not live on either extremes of the political spectrum. Most people have some left-leaning beliefs and right-leaning beliefs, as do I. Like, for example, I'm more of a social liberal. I'm a fiscal conservative. And I think that's where most Canadians live. But unfortunately, the cut and thrust of politics in media and social media doesn't play that game because it doesn't count for clicks and it doesn't get people all Mm. fired up. The reason why I like Jean Charest as a choice is because, yes, he was a liberal, and now he wants to run as a conservative, which is fine, because I'm quite sure that there are some liberal ideologies that he has that are good, and there are some conservative ideologies that, that are good. And I think with Jean Charest, he will manage to help, at least from the conservative side, bring them a little bit more to center where the reality of Canadians 
list. Yeah, he may do that. Sean, Sean, first of all, great contribution. Keep calling in, buddy. I got to get to another call, but... Man, Sean, uh, uh, for a guy that's a uh, first-time caller, you're, uh, you you slammed some home run there. You dropped the pugnacious term, and Sean's got to call back. So he says his argument is that Jean Charest can bring in disquieted liberals who are sick of Trudeau and may expand the big blue tent. But Dave in Toronto is a Pierre Polyevra guy, so let me get the other side. Dave. I think that uh, Pierre is a great way to minimize and hopefully eliminate Maxime Bernier and the uh, called the exodus to the right, where he can grab all those people and enough of the liberals that are tired of Trudeau. Uh, they'll never get the downtown Toronto people, but he'll get enough of the suburban people who are tired of carbon taxes that want just to be able to save some money. And I think that Pierre is probably the best chance that conservatives have for, uh, for a win. All right. <coughs> Pardon me, Dave. I'm uh, choking on the COVID still. I, have, I appreciate the call. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, that Dave's making a good point. Is the Conservative Party vulnerable on the right to the People's Party and Maxime Bernier? And is that is shoring up that side key? And Dave's making the point. So that was interesting, right? Because you have one caller saying, hey, you got to bring in people on the, the liberal side, disaffected liberals. The other saying you got to defend against disaffected conservatives who are bolting to the right. Man, this is going to be a good race. Um, okay, lots to come. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I always like to do something that we all can drop our political baggage and we can unite about something curious, inspirational, or fun. Are, are, it's Riskin' It All with Dan Riskin. Is that what we're calling it? And an invasion of spiders, cool spiders, gross spiders. Find out next. Sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. You know, when I was uh, in uh, university at uh, McGill, I was living in this house with uh, three other people and we had a pet store nearby uh, next door that went out of business and we ended up inheriting um, all like they didn't know what to do. So they, they like offered us to keep a, a Cayman, like a three foot Cayman and a tarantula and a whole bunch of these sort of exotic gross pets. So I ended up owning a, a tarantula. Uh, I think we called it Hobart or something. Uh, and it was kind of great and gross. And, um, and so I've had this sort of weird love-hate relationship with uh, spiders. And then I read this article about invasive spiders, the Joro spider that could come all the way to Canada. And I thought, well, we better get our, our regular segment with Dan Risk and CTV uh, science and technology specialist. And I think we're, we're trying to get a regular segment with Dan. And, and he's here now, and we've got an idea for it. And, and 71010, any ideas? Uh, welcome to the program, my friend. Thank you for having me. Anytime we can talk spiders, I am in like Flynn. I love this stuff. Wow. Okay. Risking it all with Dan Riskin? Oh, yeah. There it is. I love you that. You like that? Yeah. Risking like it that all? all? Yeah. Risking it Cause, all. Because you, you, you do it all. Risking yeah, it all. I, it's you spiders, do everything. Sure. It, that falls in the category of it all. Yeah. Right. Let's Risking it. it all. Is that is that what you like? Folks? I like you... it. I mean, if somebody okay. comes up with something else, we can have a debate. But okay. I, that's a great one. So to our weekly right segment, Risking it all with Dan Riskin on everything you need to know about everything. Yeah, this is great. This is it's a dream, man. This is awesome. Risking it all. I like that. Okay, uh, tell me about the Joro spider, <laughs> an invasive species that is freaking people out. 
Well, I mean, it's, so it's the size of a, you know, an adult's palm of their hand. What's, you know, it's just a giant spider like you okay. would use for a scary movie. I mean, and so what if they are, you know, occurring in great huge numbers all of a sudden in certain parts <laughs> of the U.S.? And so what if they're going to spread now into other places? I mean, and so what if they have 10 foot webs? Yeah. So they have these really big webs. Uh, and they are big spiders. They're very pretty uh, from a distance, right? So they're they're yellow and red, and they have these long, long like they're orb weavers, right? So they have they, they sort of sit in a big web with these long legs. They're not like a tarantula. They're they're like an orb weaver. That you know a, a body, and then these very long legs that extend from there. And I mean, they are you know of the size not your fingers on your hand, but your palm of your hand. That's about how big these things are. Can you you describe them to our listeners? Because they're colorful too. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really, they're the real deal. The legs are black and yellow stripes. Uh, They're red. They're the kind of thing that if you were a student at McGill in a pet store, went out of business, you would gladly take these things in your home to take care of in a cage. (laughs) So, because it's like, they're pretty, but you you just don't want to be surprised by one you know, on you. And so there's been this problem in the last year, uh, a bunch of them got into Georgia, just north of Atlanta, and they've been taken off like wildfire. And so there are places there now in the country where all of a sudden it looks like a set from a horror movie where there's like cobwebs everywhere. And if you look at the cobweb, there are tons of these spiders all over the place. And of course the problem, yeah, the problem then is like, you know, it's that thing where you, you don't see the web and you walk through it and then you feel it across your face and it wraps (laughs) around you and you know that the spider is on you somewhere. Oh man. You don't know where. And they're big they got this big yellow body. These like folks. I just want you to know. Like, and I like this stuff. I, I'm not. I'm not arachnophobic. But but these are uh, these are big spiders, man. Yeah, they're not small, and they're they're impressive. Uh, the good news is that they're not very harmful, right? So the venom uh, doesn't really do anything to people, uh, and it's not going to hurt your pets. And in terms of their ecology, Sorry, venom. It doesn't seem- Wait, yeah, wait, wait. Well, don't just spider... don't just glide over their... <laughs> <laughs> only okay, so you because you're like oh venom. yeah they're venom oh hold on every so they're gonna they can bite venom. you so they can all bite predatory. you they, they're all predatory and they can all i mean some of them are too small to break your skin these ones are not reported to have a very painful bite they're not reported to they don't do any damage there's nothing <laughs> medically dangerous about them they're just big scary spiders but so, hold on but just just time out risking you're saying they're big they yeah. will bite you. They do have venom. They will break your skin, but it's not going to kill you. That's the word here. Is that yeah. fair enough? Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. And so <laughs> anyway, it's unsettling. They're, to get to the punchline yeah. on all this is they, yeah. they've invaded in Georgia. And so some entomologists did a study. Well, sorry, people who study insects and other things, because, of course, they're not insects. They're arachnids. So I got to be careful. But anyway, some people uh, studying these things did a basically a study to see what their climate envelope looks like in terms of where they would survive. Because another orb weaver that looks very similar to this from South America moved to the United States 160 years ago, but it hasn't really become much of a problem. They're still pretty rare. Um, But this one isn't from tropical South America. It's originally from Japan. And Japan is climatically pretty similar to North America. So on paper, anyway, this thing should do pretty well across big parts of North America. And as juveniles, these things use something called ballooning to get around. So when they lay their eggs and the little babies are, are hatched, they spin a web and it's just like uh, Charlotte's web. They spin a web and then the wind takes them and, and they're, they're hanging from this line and they balloon away and they can go 100 kilometers, no problem this way. So they've got the dispersal ability. 
they've got uh, the climate looks like it's right for them. So the prediction is that we could be seeing these things across the eastern seaboard of the states. Do they have the any real- predators? Like, like are because invasive species? You know, you think of oh my god, the invasive species. It's like yeah. the, the the zebra mussels. They actually yeah. end up doing a, a, a crap load of real damage. Invasive species scientifically, economically, are very damaging. Yes, they can be. But sometimes, depending on the life history of the organism, it, it, some are worse than others. Like if you have something that reproduces really, really quickly and eats a whole lot of things, then that could be a problem. These spiders are more like top predators of invertebrates. So they probably are going to make a dent in things like stink bugs. A lot of people think they're probably ecologically uh, not going to be that big a deal. But other people say, well, what about the native spiders that are going to be competing with them? So we don't really know how that's going to play out yet. But people aren't being apocalyptic about that aspect of it nor are they being apocalyptic about what it'll do to people and their pets, right? So this is kind of like a creepy looking thing that actually might not be as harmful as other things. But of course, famous last words, we'll see what happens when they make their big uh, expansion. But the, the important thing is one of the things they looked at in the studies is uh, this thing's tolerance to cold. And Canada, uh, like we like to complain about those winters, but they save us from a lot of weird things. And this is going to be one of the things that at least according to this study will be protected. These things shouldn't get up into Canada because they can tolerate oh, a really? brief freeze, but not a long freeze. So oh. they, we should be okay. Anywhere that's got a real winter, should be okay. And most of Canada. Oh, I've heard they could come in here. By the way, let me give you some text messages about our segment. As I speak to Dan Riskin, CTV science and technology specialist. I'm not going to lie. Dan's not really selling these spiders very well. (laughs) And yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, like, I, I love nature. I'd love to see one of these. Yeah, I again, know you do. That's what I love. You're like, oh, the venom. Uh, okay, someone just texted, okay, Dan, Georgia, off my bucket list. But yeah. someone's voting. Ellen just voted for Riskin at all. Oh, yeah. Uh, and well, someone, so, someone says Riskin Business from Dan. Yeah, Riskin's Business. I used to have a segment on Daily Planet called Riskin's Business. I was, yeah. I always liked that one a lot because it had that. But they said I should wear no pants and dance into the scene. Yeah, the sunglasses and the tidy whities Yeah, that, I think that's, yeah. I, we don't want to talk about that too much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the spider thing is interesting. Can, can I just say something? I, and folks, the, the reason I think this is interesting is... Uh, w- it does lead us to a discussion of invasive species and, and invasive species, whether in our lakes and rivers, when they come, um, they are super damaging. So the thing about this Joro spider, it's going to make headlines, but it's not going to be that bad. So maybe we can do something and, and talk about the most dangerous invasive species at some point. Dan, would you be up for that? Oh, I would love that. I got lots on my bucket list of invasive species to talk about. So we could we could carry on a big conversation about if that. If you fell a, asleep and the Joro spider landed on you, would you A, freak out, or would you have like a science nerd moment? Oh, it would be a nerd moment. I mean, it would be a little Jesus. scared, but I mean, it's a good-looking spider. Like, I would have to get a good picture <laughs> of a, it. It's a good-looking... Dan Riskin. <laughs> when you can say, yeah, it's a good-looking spider. I'll see oh, you on Power is. Play tonight. You are the best, brother. You are the best. <laughs> <laughs> 